Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, 24, through 2, 2, and it's page 983 in our Pew Bibles. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, the word of the Lord. Okay, good morning, everybody. We are moving forward in our sermon series this morning, Held Together, based off of our key text, which comes from Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, where Paul says that of Christ, uh, in him all things hold together. So throughout our sermon series, we've been exploring the ways in which Christ brings together all things in himself, and then what this means for our life and the mission of the church. So we've been to Nicaea, we've been to Chalcedon. We went to the history of Israel. This morning we're back to where we started in Colossians chapter 1, but this time we're looking at verse uh, 24 through chapter 2-2. Now there's a lot here in this passage, more than we're going to be able uh, to get to, but I'm going to be focusing on one particular aspect of this passage, the idea of the church as the body of Christ. So if you have your Bible still open, you can look here, and in verse 24, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. The sake of his body that is the church. And so in 1.18, you can look over just uh, halfway across your page, Paul refers there as well to Christ as the head of the body, which is the church. This idea of the church as the body of Christ, this is not seen elsewhere in the Bible, nor seen elsewhere in the New Testament. It's a distinctly Pauline idea. It's one of Paul's contributions to the New Testament. And he frames up the identity of the church as the body of Christ. And one of the amazing things that happens when Christ holds together the human nature and the divine nature is that the divine nature makes the human nature its own body. But what does that mean, that the human nature becomes the body of the divine nature? 
Well, that's what we're going to try to figure out this morning. Now, I've got to be honest. This is going to be a little bit of an abstract sermon, and I'm, I'm generally pretty good at bringing abstract things down to concrete stuff, generally, and uh, I'm just not sure about this sermon, actually. <laughs> you know, normally when I'm preparing my sermons, Jill will be like, how's it going? I'll be like, oh, it's good, you know, I feel good about it, to say something like that. Or sometimes I'm just like, well, I tried this week, I tried. <laughs> You know, so I tried. I gave it a good college try. You're going to give it a good college try. We're going to do our best here this morning. And uh, if nothing else, we've got the love of God. And uh, we got that, right? So we're all right. Uh, but what does it mean that the human nature becomes the body of the divine nature? That's going to be the, the point of this sermon, trying to answer that question. So here, here's how this sermon is going to work. So first I want to move through this text that we've read this morning where Paul says that the church is the body of Christ. Then we're going to pause for a little philosophical interlude. We've been doing a lot of interludes. It's a philosophical interlude today. I don't have any pictures today, though. I'm sorry. It's too abstract that I couldn't even come up with pictures. So um, we're going to do a little philosophical interlude, and then I'm going to draw out four quick points of application. So teach the text, philosophical interlude, apply the text. All right. Let's get into our text here this morning. Our aim is to get clarity about what Paul means when he says that the church is the body of Christ. But in order to do this, I want us to look here in this passage at Paul's idea of the mystery or of mystery. Because these two ideas in Paul, the church as the mystery of Christ and the church as the body of Christ, are going to run together in Paul's thoughts. So we're, we're aiming for clarity on what Paul means by the body of Christ, but we're going to do it through the route of looking at Paul's concept of the mystery of Christ. And hopefully that'll make sense as we, as we move on. All right, in verse 25, Paul says that he's a minister of the church to make known the word of God, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to or through or in, it could be any translation there, in the saints. Now, Paul uses this term mystery three times in this passage. I don't know if you caught that when we were reading through it, but he uses it here in verse 26, or verse 25, rather, and then he uses it at the end of 27, and then he uses it again in chapter 2, verse 2. I'm going to talk a little bit about this Greek term that is underlying our English term mystery. The English term mystery that we have here comes from the Greek term mysterion. Now, mysterion overlaps with the English term quite a bit, but it has an added element that makes it slightly different than our English term mystery. So in English, the term mystery refers almost exclusively to something that is unknown, something that we don't know. That's a mystery. I don't know. But in Greek, the term mysterion refers to something unknown that has now been made known. So it's a revealed mystery. So when you're in the middle of the game of Clue, it's a mystery as to who killed Mrs. White. But when you've finished the game of Clue and you've discovered that it was Professor Plum in the kitchen with the candlestick, the game of Clue has moved from a mystery to a mysterion. Right? It's a revealed mystery. The answer has become apparent. So a mysterion is a resolved, revealed mystery, which is why in 25 and 26, Paul 
links Mysterion, the mystery of the Word of God, to Revelation. Paul says, I became a minister to make the Word of God fully known, to reveal it. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed. So in this passage, Paul has, he uses the term Mysterion three times, and there's actually three different mysteries that he's referring to throughout this passage. So we're going to look at each of these different mysteries. And we're going to take them not necessarily in order, uh, but the first Mysterion is what we've already seen in verses 25 and 26. The first Mysterion is the gospel message or the Word of God. Paul calls the Word of God the mystery uh, that has been fully known now through Paul's preaching, the things that he says and, the, and uh, revealed to the church. Right, so Paul is referring to this first Mysterion as the message of the gospel. But now Paul does something pretty interesting with a second Mysterion. Because for Paul, the mystery revealed, the Mysterion, the second Mysterion, isn't just the message that Paul proclaims. It is that. But for Paul, the Mysterion of the gospel message is pointing towards the Mysterion that is Christ himself. So now we can look down to the end of our passage here at Luke, or in Colossians 2, 1 and 2. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mysterion, which is Christ. Christ himself is the mystery of God that has been hidden for ages past in the heart of God, but that now is revealed. This is why Paul says in verse 128, Him we proclaim, proclaiming Christ who is the revelation of God. Sometimes I think we can fall into the, into the trap of thinking that the church's job is simply to proclaim a message about historical facts that happened in the past, as though the gospel is a recounting of historical episodes. But Christ himself, Paul is saying, is the gospel. The gospel means good news. Christ is the good news. He is the mysterion, the revealed mystery of God who reveals the knowledge of God. Now, Augustine's writings are helpful here. The Bible was written in Greek, but as it passed into the Latin world, the word mysterion had to be translated into Latin. And the Latin authors had a couple different terms that they used to translate mysterion, but one of the terms they used was sacramentum, from which we get the word sacrament. And Augustine's explanation of how the word sacramentum as a translation of mysterion helps us understand how Christ himself is the revealed mystery of God. All right, so now see if we can follow this. Augustine uses the example, to illustrate this point he wants to make, of a lover's kiss to explain the idea of a sacramentum. The lover's love, he says, is invisible. It's a mystery. It's unknown. It can't be seen. But the lover's kiss is a visible sign that makes the lover's love known. It reveals the invisible love of the lover. 
And then here's what I think is the most insightful part of Augustine's explanation. He points out that a kiss is not just like any other sign. A kiss actually contains or it embodies the very thing that is revealing or signifying. So the love of the lover is in the kiss. And it's in this same way, Augustine says, that Christ is the sacrament or the revelation of God. Christ himself is the ultimate revelation of God because he contains God. So Paul makes this point in chapter 1, verse 19, when he says, For in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So God himself is in Christ, and when Christ manifests himself, he's revealing God. Christ carries within himself this very thing that he's revealing. And this is how Christ is both the mystery and the revelation of the mystery at the same time. But there's one more mysterion in this passage, and we can find this in verse 27. Paul says to them, he's speaking, says to them or through them, uh, speaking of the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, mysterion, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. God is making known among the Gentiles the riches of the glory of the mystery which is Christ in you. When Paul says Christ in you, he's speaking of the church. It's what the church is. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the people of God into whom God's spirit has been poured out. And so Christ in you is a reference to the church, and Paul is saying that the church is a mysterion. It is a revelation of something. Just as the gospel message is the mystery revealed, just as Christ is the mystery revealed, so too the church is the mystery revealed. The church, in its union with Christ, bears witness to Christ. So what the church is revealing is what it contains, which is the life and blood and spirit of Christ. So this is our golden chain of discipleship that we've been talking about the Second Corinthians sermon series. God reveals himself through Christ, who is the revealed mystery of God, and then Christ reveals himself through the church, which is the revealed mystery of the church. And it's from this vantage point that we can begin to think properly about the church as the body of Christ. Christ contains and reveals God. The church contains and reveals Christ. And we're going to see that the body contains and reveals the person. So before pressing forward here in our sermon, we're going to pause for our philosophical interlude. I want to pause here because our culture has given us a number of wrong ways to think about the body, but one of the wrong ways that the culture has given us runs into conflict in particular with the underlying point that Paul is making here. And if we're not clear about the nature of the physical body, we're not going to be clear about the nature of Christ's spiritual body. So a chief wrong way 
that our culture has taught us to think about the body is to think about the body as a tool or an instrument. You could call this the body as instrument view of the body. We can trace this instrumental view of the body back to the European Enlightenment in the 1700s, and we can find thinkers there such as René Descartes. And Descartes was famous, does anyone know what he was famous for? He had a famous stain, anyone? I think, therefore I am, very good. Does anyone know it in Latin? Oh, I heard it back here, very good, man. You're, give that guy a raise. You don't have to put any money in the offering plate next time. I think, therefore, I am. And he's, his idea here that made him famous, I think, therefore, I am, is connected to his view of the body because he taught that a person's truest identity was found in thinking, in reason, in ideas. The body was just an instrument or a tool that the person used to enact or to carry out one's thoughts or ideas. So from this perspective, in the same way that I might use a hammer or a paintbrush to get things done, I use my body as just one more tool that I use to get things done. The body is just another tool that the person has at his or her disposal to make a dent in the world. And in the same way that a man could lose a tool, like a hammer or a paintbrush, without losing any part of his personhood, so too a man could lose a leg or an arm or even his whole body without losing any part of his personhood. Which is to say that the, the body is not a necessary part of the person in this view. Now, this is how a lot of us, even as Christians, can tend to think about the body. We tend to think of it as a dispensable, at times useful, at times less useful, tool or instrument that the person uses. And as we get older, our be body becomes less efficient as a tool, becomes broken down. And if we had time, and if this were a different sermon, I could draw a line, a pretty steady line, from Descartes' the body is just a tool to the contemporary debates and confusion that we have regarding sexuality. The body is just an external tool. It's owned by the person, just like a person owns any other tool. Then who's to tell me how I can use my tool? I should be able to use my tool however I want. But the body as tool view of Christ of the but the body as tool view of the body is not how Christianity teaches us to think about the body. Christianity, taking its cues from the church as the body of Christ, teaches us that the human body is a sacramentum or a mysterium that reveals the person within it. So John Paul II, he's three popes ago, if you're keeping track of your popes, he's one of the most articulate spokesmen on this point in the modern age. And you can read his views in his big book, The Theology of the Body. What John Paul points out is that you can't see the human person. The human person, like God, is invisible, intangible. Right? The human person can't be seen, but the human person, but the human person can be known through their body. So the sounds that the human person makes, the the way that the human person moves their body, their actions, all of these, these things reveal the body or reveal the person. So the body, John Paul is saying, 
is the mysterion or the sacrament of the person that reveals or makes known the otherwise unknown person. And the reason that it does so, the reason it works like this, is because the mysterion of the person contains the very person that it reveals. This becomes the sharp difference between what John Paul II is saying and what Descartes was saying. So if you kicked me in the shins, I might ask, calmly and charitably, because I'm a Christian, I might say, why did you kick me? But if you kicked my hammer, I would never say, why did you kick me? Because my shin, as part of my body, is so connected to my person that my shin is properly spoken of as me. But my hammer is external to me. It's not part of me. It's just a tool that I have. And because my shin, as part of my body, contains my person in some meaningful way, I can say or ask, why did you kick me when you kick my shin? Or, again, uh, my person is in my shin such that whatever you have done to the least of my appendages, you have done it unto me. <laughs> and that brings us back to Christ's two natures, and the church as the body of Christ. Because when does Christ say that line that I just kind of riffed off of? Whatever you have done to the least of these, you've done it to me. To the least of these, my children. right? The least of my people, you've done it to me. Because Christ is connected to his body. The divine nature as our hymns and our scriptures proclaim, even Paul is saying it here in verse 15, is invisible. Christ is the image of the invisible God. The divine nature is beyond creation's capacity to know or to understand or to even see. In Christ's original Trinitarian unity, Christ does not have, the Son does not have a material body through which he can be seen or known or accessed by a material creation. But the bodiless son incarnated into the human body and God became visible. And then Christ took this visible body up into heaven and the vision of God was lost. And that was the end. No, but it wasn't. And why wasn't it? It wasn't because Christ poured himself, his own spirit, gave us a share in his own blood, in his own life. He poured all of that into the church, and he made the church his body upon the earth. And the church becomes then the visible body of Christ. I remember when Christ was uh, sending it back up into heaven, he told his disciples that he was going to leave, and they said, oh, you know, it's terrible that you're going away. And Jesus says, no, it's better for you that I go away. Because when I go away, I will then pour out my spirit upon my whole people so that everyone will have my spirit, and my body will go from being just this single entity, have this single member. It will be going to be a body of many members. Right? And then the glory of God and the glory of Christ, the life of Christ, the blood of Christ, the spirit of Christ will spread throughout the whole earth in ways that it could never do if I just kept all of that contained within my own single body. So Christ makes the church his own visible body. So to put this in the terms of our Health Together sermon series, 
Christ has brought the human nature so close to the divine nature, has poured the divine nature into the human nature in such a way that the human nature of Christ, as manifested in the church, can now be said to be the body or the revelation of God. I mean, it's just extraordinary. I mean, if you can let yourself sink into that truth, that the God who made all things, who is beyond all things, who can't be contained by, has taken upon himself a body, and then through that body, he has opened up a way for humanity to become part of that body so that humanity in the church can be a revelation and a witness, a sign that contains the things signified to all of creation about the unseen God. So just as our physical earthly bodies make visible our invisible persons, so too Christ's churchly body makes visible the invisible God. All right, now let's, well, end. that's the teaching portion of the sermon. Let's see if we can make some use of this here by giving quick, quick four applications. All right, now the first uh, of these uh, is not really an application. It's probably more just a principle that might be encouraging to you. I hope that it is. But the first of these is that the church, as the body of Christ, means that Christ loves us. A couple weeks ago, I was walking out of church with Maley, my nine-year-old daughter, and uh, someone stopped us and commented to me about how much they appreciated that I always ended the sermons or the services by saying, God loves you. So I said, thank you, and then Maley and I walked on, and Maley said, Dad, you say that every week. You've got to get some new material. <laughs> you know? and, and I, you know, I, we're just going to stick with it probably, but... Sometimes I'm praying and I think, Lord, what do you want me to say, you know, to this person? Or what do you want me to say in this sermon? And I feel like the answer comes back more often than not, just tell them I love them. Because that's what the whole message of the gospel is. That is the revelation of Christ. That is why God sent Christ, to reveal himself. And what does Christ reveal about God? Christ reveals that God loves us. That is the message of the gospel. So in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is talking more about the body, uh, the church as the body of Christ. And in verses 29 and 30, Paul says, No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. I think sometimes we can think of Christ or God loving us from heaven. Right? He's up there, we're down here. He looks down benignly on us, paternally upon us, right? And he has, you know, fond thoughts of us. But that, that's not untrue, but there's more to it than that because in Christ, Christ has taken us as his church and made us part of his very self, part of his body. So Christ doesn't just love us from afar. He loves us as his own self his own body. And this is why he nourishes and cherishes us. He nourishes and cherishes us because we are part of him. So in all the same reasons that you nourish and cherish and take care of your own physical body, because your body is part of you and what happens to your body is affecting you, 
Christ also nourishes and cherishes his spiritual body, which is the church, because what happens to us is what's happening to him. He has wed himself to us. He has made himself one with us so that we have become his actual body. And maybe that's a needed reminder for some of you this morning, that Jesus loves you as he loves his own self. That through the gift of his spirit in your life, you have become a part of Christ's own self. So if you think that Christ's love is far away from you or it's outside of you, Christ has brought you into himself and made you a member of himself, and he loves you like he loves himself with the same love. That leads, I think, to a second point of encouragement. The church as the body of Christ means that Christ feels our pain as our own. Some of you this morning, I know, are going through very difficult, painful circumstances. I don't just mean painful physical circumstances, so that could be true as well. But there's emotional pain and there's psychological pain. You're going through a difficult circumstance and it may feel like no one really quite gets you. No one really quite understands. You can't put into words what you feel or when you try, it's like people, they get 90% of it, but they can't get all of it. But there is someone who knows exactly what you're going through because they are feeling what you feel because you are part of his body. So when the Apostle Paul, before he became the Apostle Paul, he was the persecutor Paul, and he was on his way to Damascus to persecute more Christians. And when he was on his way to Damascus, Christ stopped him, confronted him miraculously. And you remember what Jesus, the first thing Jesus asked Paul when he confronted him. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting those Christians? Why are you persecuting those good people? He said, why are you persecuting me? Because Paul, because Jesus had so identified himself with his church that when Paul was running around kicking everyone in the shins, all of Jesus' people, he was kicking Jesus in the shins. And so the persecution that Paul was giving to Christ, the pain or the, the persecution that Paul was giving to Christ's people was persecution and pain that he was causing to Christ. And this is a reminder about how much I think God loves us. That he would take into his own body, that he would make as part of his body members of his body that are racked with pain and suffering and sorrow. Imagine that you had the opportunity to construct a new human body. You're going to get new fingers, new toes, new neck, new back, whatever it might be, right? You could go to a catalog, you know, and you could pick out your, you know, your new back and your new fingers, whatever, right? How many of you would pick out the fingers that are bent and broken, right? The backs that are all out of wrench, Right? The places that are the, the, the body parts that are scarred and full of pain. You wouldn't take those into yourself because you would begin to feel all of them. But Christ loves us so much that he has taken all of us into himself and he experiences all of our pain. 
Like, he knows what it is that we go through. Just like you know what your finger is going through. Even though you're not your finger, you know what your finger's going through when it gets smuck, uh, hit with a hammer, right? Christ knows what it is that we're going through, and he loves us so much that he has taken all of us into himself, to the point even, as Paul says in verse 20 of Colossians 1, in reconciling us to himself, he has done it through the blood of his cross. At great pain, he has taken us into himself. Christ, as eternally divine, he's filled with infinite joy. And so the hope of the gospel is that as he brings in the finite suffering of the world into himself, his infinite joy is able to rise or stay uh, compensated and above it. That's our hope, is that Christ's infinite joy can overcome our finite pain. But it would be wrong to think that, that this means God is somehow above or removed from our pain. Because in Christ, he has made his pain our own so that he can heal it. All right, a third thing to say, this gets maybe more now into actual application, is the church as the body of Christ means that Christ enacts his will through us. So I have no other way of getting things done in the world except through my body. That's just the only way that I can get things done. Even sending email, I got I to gotta use my body to type the email. Right? Everything that has to happen between you and I and getting things done in the world has to happen through our body. And it's the same with Christ. Jesus gets things done in the world through his body. Now, this is a, both a sober responsibility and it's also a great privilege. Right? That, that Christ has made him, we could even say it like this, Christ has made himself dependent upon his body to get the things done in the world that he wants to get done. That puts the responsibility then back on you and I, but we don't act out Christ's will in our own strength. We act out Christ's will in his strength, which is why Paul says in verse 29 of our passage, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Right? The, the things that we do in the world for Christ as Christ's body are done through the energy that he supplies the body by his life and his spirit and his blood. But the thing to, to think through here a little bit as relates to us as individuals is that the body is made up, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, of many parts, right? And not all the parts are the same. Not all of us are the same parts of the body. So some of us are better at this, some of us are better at that, some of us have gifts here, some of us have gifts over here. And just as when you approach a task that you have to get done, you decide which parts of the, your body you're going to use to do that task. Is this a job that calls for the hands to work, for the fingers to work? Which fingers need to work? Do the feet need to get involved in this? Do the eyes need to get involved? Do you have to close one eye to see the other? Like you have to decide all these things, right? And you direct your body based on your individual body parts to get done the task that you want to get done. Well, Christ is the same. He's got this body, and it's made up of individual members that are all gifted and unique in different ways. And when he wants to get something done, he reaches, as it were, for the part of his body that is able to get that thing done most effectively. So what are your gifts and your skills, the unique opportunities that you have as a unique member of the body of Christ to get things done for Christ? And are you yielded to Christ so that he can get those things done? 
you ever had like a broken arm, you know how that can get in the way of trying to put on your shoes or get dressed, right? You, you lose access to that arm, right? And when parts of Christ's body are not yielded to him, he can't get things done through those parts of the body. So then he has to work other parts of the body to get those things done. And sometimes those other parts of the body aren't as good at doing the thing that needs to get done as you are or I am. So we want to yield ourselves to the, the lordship of Christ, to the head of the body, so that we are doing what is asked of us and bringing about the will of Christ. So think through that maybe a bit. If there's something that you feel like the Lord is calling you to do, but you've been dragging your feet on and unyielding on and how you're impeding the body of Christ moving forward. Last point, the church as the body of Christ means that Christ reveals himself through us. I am with this point because this is perhaps the chief function of the body as a sacrament. It's to reveal and to make known. The church exists in the world as a revelation of Christ. A revelation to the world of Christ. Not just the message of Christ, but to Christ himself. Because the church contains the thing that is signifying. We have contained within us through the Holy Spirit the very thing that we are revealing, which is Christ. Now, you're not the whole body, and you can't reveal Christ to the whole world, but you are a member of Christ's body, and Christ has appointed you to reveal him somewhere in the world. So your individual uniqueness, our then corporate uniqueness as a local church, and then moving on further out and broadly, we each have areas and avenues that we can witness or proclaim or reveal the life of Christ inside of us. And so as you think about the, the sphere of influence that you have as an individual, right, what is your sphere of influence that you have? We don't all have the same spheres. And where can you reveal Christ? You're bringing Christ with you to that place. How are you revealing Christ in that place? And are you revealing Christ well in that place? Or is what you're revealing of Christ not accurate to who Christ is? Right? There are times, I think, that this age in which we live right now, we're kind of living between the coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Jesus is teaching the body how to behave. You know, if you've ever seen someone that got an injury and then they're learning to walk again, like the body doesn't always do what you're trying to tell it to do. It takes time to, to learn how to get the body to behave in accordance with the desires of the head. I think that's the, that's, that's the age in which we live right now. Right? We're trying to learn how to walk in accordance with the desires of the head. We can stumble our way forward. Christ is very patient with us. But as you look to reveal Christ within the sphere or circles that you live in, how are you revealing Christ? Are you revealing Christ? Are you willing to reveal Christ? All right, we're going to close by singing a song that uh, speaks of Christ surrounding us and being all around us. And, and, uh, and as you sing this song and reflect perhaps on some of these truths about Christ having brought the, the, the human nature into himself, Right? And then putting himself inside the human nature and revealing himself through the human nature. In what ways uh, do, you, uh, do you need to uh, live into that reality? Right? So maybe this is a, a Sunday in which 
it's a, it's a Sunday of encouragement that Christ is in you because it reminds you that you're loved and that Christ knows your pain. Maybe this Sunday is, for some of you, an exhortation that you're not living out the reality of Christ in all the ways that you know that you should. And you contain in you, you're a holy sacrament, and you contain in you the life of Christ, but, but the life of Christ isn't looking so good coming out of you. How are the Lord speaking uh, to you? Uh, you let the Lord speak to you on that. Uh, we'll have the band come up. I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll sing together. God, thank you. Thank you that you gave us Christ. And um, when we were just a broken body without any ability to make good on ourselves and all the gifts that you've given to us. You have uh, come and you have placed Christ inside of us and you have made us your own body. And what a great responsibility and privilege, what a great uh, encouragement and comfort that is. God, I pray that you would cause us to learn more and more how to walk with you uh, in obedience so that we would Reveal Christ well, I pray. I ask this in Jesus' name.